0: Hello and welcome back to Days Gone By, a podcast that's part of the Scattered Abroad Network. My name is Jameson Stewart, and today's episode of Days Gone By is a sermon that was preached by Don Walker. Uh, This is a sermon he preached back on the 2017 Memphis School of Preaching Lectures. The title of his sermon was The Perfect Example While Facing the Fire, and the text of his sermon was 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through verse 25. So I hope you enjoy today's episode of Days Gone By with Don Walker. He left off the most important part. I have nine grandchildren, four children in that order. They didn't come that order, but that's the order they stand now. But uh, we are certainly glad to be here, uh, to be with uh, Brother Mosier and Brother Clark and Brother McDaniels and all that are associated with the school. Our time here was a great joy, a privilege, a blessing for me, and uh, certainly uh, helpful for me in the new role as I moved back to Texas. I appreciate Brother Moser and Brother Clark's work on the lectureship and and the invitation and all that they do. It is a yeoman's task uh, by any means, under any measurement, and they have done an outstanding job. And we are grateful for that. And I am especially thankful for my topic. When I, when I saw the topic that I was given, I almost just jumped out of my chair and started jumping up and down with joy. It is a beautiful, beautiful topic. Beginning in chapter 3 of Genesis, in verse 15, we find, of course, what is the first Messianic prophecy. And the Lord speaking unto Satan himself, which I find it a little bit uh, interesting that the first Messianic prophecy was directed directly to Satan. And he said, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and, and her seed. And he shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now I'm confident that the three that were there who heard that did not have a clue what it was mentioning and what it was speaking of and how it would affect, be unfolded rather through history. You and I have the light of the New Testament. And when we hear, thou shalt bruise his heel, we know exactly what he's talking about. As we read through scripture, we remember in Genesis chapter 22, While Isaac is laying on the altar, he's about to take the life of Isaac as God has commanded him to do. His hand is stayed. God commands him not to take his life. And Isaac is as good as raised from the dead, the Hebrew writer says. And in the thicket was a ram and that ram became a substitute, a propitiation who would give his life. We continue to read through the history of Israel and events that stand out in our minds. We turn to the book of Exodus chapter 12, and we remember that a lamb was to be taken, the blood was to be put on the doorpost, and death would pass over them. That Passover lamb was sacrificed. And we remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse seven. Jesus Christ is our Passover. He was sacrificed for us. We continue to read in the book of Leviticus, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, sacrifices. Chapter 16, the day of the Hebrews, the day of atonement. When the high priest would step down a sinner among sinners, offer a sacrifice for he and his family and the priesthood, offer sacrifice for the people, and then there would be that one sacrifice of two parts. The lot would fall on one. He would be sacrificed, give his life. The other scapegoat carried outside of the camp into the wilderness to die, signifying our sins being carried away. But it was that offering... That blood offering, that sacrifice, that death that you and I look to and we know exactly the symbolism, we know what the antitype is. We continue to read and in whatever genre of scripture we read, whether we're talking about the law or whether we're talking about poetry, whether we're talking about the prophets in the Old Testament, the subject comes up time and time again. Isa or I'm sorry, Psalm 22, a poetic description of the crucifixion, hundreds of years before Christ was crucified, hundreds of years before the crucifixion was even practiced, even invented. David wrote, Many bulls compassed me about. Strong bulls of Bashan beset me round. They gaped on me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is melted in the midst of my bowels. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me to the dust of death. The crucifixion. The prophets can't fail to mention Isaiah 53 by his stripes you are healed. He's the suffering servant, he's the offering, he's the price that would be paid. Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah 13 and verse 1 there would be a fountain open for the cleansing of God's people. And in John chapter 19, when that soldier thrusts that spear into the side of Jesus and blood and water come forth, that fountain is opened, a cleansing fountain that was only delivered one way through the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on that cruel cross. We go on, and as we continue to read in Zechariah 13, awake, O sword. Against my shepherd, the one who is my fellow, fellow Jehovah, he was the one offered. He was the one sacrificed. And you and I know we just simply touched the high points through the Old Testament. We could have stopped any one of those and a number of others and spent our time focusing upon that. Then there was 400 years of silence and when we opened the New Testament, and we hear the one that is sent to prepare the way of the Lord. His message is, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The imagery is clear in the minds of the Jews. It ought to be clear in yours and my mind as we studied the Old Testament. We know he's the sacrifice. He's the one. He's the Passover. We know he is going to be the one that is offered. And then we come to the latter pages of each gospel account and we see there the injustice, the atrocity that is heaped toward the sinless, perfect Son of God. And as we look in Mark chapter 15 and we listen to the words And after Pilate could not convince them of his innocence, they knew he was innocent. But they had to have him dead. The venom, the hatred is obvious. And Pilate finally, being the coward that he was, willing to content the people, it says, release Barabbas unto them and deliver Jesus. And when he was scourged, He delivered him to be crucified. Many didn't make it through the scourging. Though they had been sentenced to be crucified, they never made it. An individual would be stripped naked, his hands would be tied, they would be pulled up where his back would be tight. And a Roman soldier skilled in the use of a whip-like instrument with braided leather and on the ends of this braided leather there would be pieces of broken pottery, sharp stone, broken bones to lacerate, to cut. There would be times when it would be one soldier, other times they say there were two, one on each side and they would take turns or that soldier would step side to side and he would begin the the beating. And he would throw that whip-like instrument across the side and drag it, tearing first the skin, then the muscles, and the sinew. And it would go from the shoulders down to the bend of his legs, lacerating every time, blood beginning to flow by the end. The shoulder blades were described as white caps on a red sea. The ribbons, the bloody ribbons hanging down. You could see the skeletal features and the pulsing of the heart. And then having gone through that, he would be called upon to carry the cross, which was probably the cross beam. They say it weighed approximately, archaeologists tell us, 300 pounds. He would be nailed to that. And then in a mortise tenon type system, that cross piece would be lifted up on the perpendicular piece that was in the ground permanently, and he would be dropped into place. His shoulder blades would separate. The loss of blood would bring dehydration. David said, my heart is melted in the midst of my bowels. The blood would become so thick that the heart had to labor to pulse and push the blood through the body. By that time he had been beaten, you would not have recognized him by the end as uh, he looked at before it began. The five unlawful trials, first to Annas, Caiaphas, then Pilate, then to Herod, and then back to Pilate, being beaten, mocked. Spat upon, a crown of thorns placed on his head, slapped with hands, slapped with fists, hit with rods. And by the time he comes out, you wouldn't have known him. And then he would hang on the cross. And as he hung on the cross, those that put him there the Jewish leaders then would mock him. Those who had spat upon him would ridicule him. In fact, as we go to Luke chapter 23, verses 35 through 39, it says that he was derided by those that were around him. It says he was mocked by those that were around him. And it says even one of the thieves railed against him. While he was on the cross. And that word malt. The Greek word is a very illustrative word. It says they were throwing words at his teeth. And the idea is that had he been able to stand up and walk up there. He would have just punched him in the mouth. In his teeth. But they were doing that with the words. Hostile. We remember the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, one of which, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We quoted from Psalm 22, and there are many who believe that Jesus quoted the whole psalm while he was on the cross because the older copies of Psalm 22 end with, It is finished. It is finished. That's what was going through the mind of our Savior while he was on the cross. The struggle that he went through for you and for me. And yet, as we view our Savior on the cross as despising as the picture is and the activity that's hurled toward him, we still see the beauty of our Holy Lord in His conduct, in His response or lack of response when all of that was being heaped toward Him. It is no wonder the Apostle Paul said, I have determined to know nothing among you save Christ and Him crucified. It's no wonder that our God Determined and Jesus Christ himself delivered to the apostles and also to the apostle Paul a memorial so that every first day of the week you and I gather around the Lord's table. And we partake of the unleavened bread, which Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 represents the body that was broken for us. No bones broken, we know that, but that body was mutilated. And the fruit of the vine, which represents the power for our salvation, the blood of Christ. And each first day of the week, as we begin that action of worship, our minds go back to these scenes that I've just described. It's no wonder the Lord put that for us. Because everything, listen to me very carefully, everything within that action of our Savior is worthy of our examination and worthy of our following his example it is worthy of being in our mind for every decision that we make worthy of being in our mind for every reaction that we give to anyone it is worthy to keep in our minds for it helps us to realize and understand that though we pass through this path that is a fiery path, a path of persecution if we're doing it right, that it's only for a moment, it's only for a brief time until we receive the glory that our Lord received. We are fellow joint heirs with Christ And so, whatever price we have to pay here, whatever we have to give up, whatever we have to stifle within ourselves, what might be our natural reaction is reasonable and right and a small price to pay when we consider what our Lord paid. Oh that we never forget the sacrifice and hopefully it's not just one day a week that, that we think about it. Let's turn our attention to our passage of study. First Corinthians chapter or First Peter chapter 1 beginning with verse 21. Brother Cody did an excellent job in in the classroom dealing with the earlier verses and the the sacrifice of servants and how they are supposed to respond to their masters, if they're good masters, if they're froward masters, if they're evil masters, the response is to be the same. And so when we begin with verse 21 of this chapter, it says, For, so it's referencing back what he's told us. And he says, For even hereunto were ye called... You were called to suffer. You were called to pay a price. If any man came after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. We just saw the, the emphasis of the cross. Take up your cross. It was not an instrument of corporal punishment. They didn't give spankings with the cross. They killed you on the cross. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And any man having put his hand to the plow and looking back, he's not worthy of me. So you were called Saul of Tarsus, he'll be told what great things he'll suffer for my cause. Acts 9, verse 16. Christians, it's given for you not only to believe, but to also suffer. Philippians 1 29. They that live godly shall suffer. Persecution. If you're not suffering persecution, you might ought to evaluate your life and see if you're living godly. See if you're being the example you ought to be. See if you're following the example of Jesus Christ because we are called to suffer. Why? Because Christ also suffered for us. That constant theme in our minds He suffered for us. I'm called to suffer. And so when we see the apostles beaten, told don't preach Jesus anymore, they went on their way rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. What a great privilege to pay the price for our Savior who paid the price for us. So we were called unto this, leaving us an example An interesting word here in the Greek. It's found only here once in the New Testament. The hupagrahmen is the Greek word. In fact, even in the secular literature is very rare, a very rare word used. And what it was, it pictured an instructor, a teacher, who had students, very young students, and a pad And across the top of that pad would be whatever it was that they were to be learning. The alphabet, in the case if we were speaking English language, the alphabet, the ABCs would be up there. And the the hoopagrammen, the ABCs up at the top, is what they would follow, the example. And there would also be the idea uh, of you would have the sheet underneath that had the letters, and you'd put another sheet on top, being able to see them, and you would follow that example. Follow that example. Striving to imitate exactly what was underneath the paper you were writing upon. And so our Lord has told us through Peter, here's the hoopogram, and here's your example. Here's what you're to strive to be. Here's your standard set across the top of the tablet. Set underneath the paper that you're writing upon. Underneath your life. And you're to strive to imitate it perfectly. Perfectly. You're to do your best not to flaw. Not to go off in any way. He has given us that example. Verse 21. That ye should follow his steps. It's interesting that many passages, most of them, when they call upon us to follow Jesus, it's in a context of suffering and affliction. Revelation 14 4. Follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Read the context. It's talking about those who have gone through fire, gone through the suffering, paid the price, were afflicted, persecuted. And that's what we're to do. And he goes on and describes for us how he suffered. And the very first statement that he makes is, Who did no sin? Who did no sin? I can remember when I was younger and the old man and no one would disrespect me i would not allow it and i would retaliate the old man had to be put to death and the old man has to be stifled even today because there are times when affliction comes There are times when accusations are made. There are times when people will say things about me that are not true. The old man would have to respond. It was childish. It was ungodly. And one thing you and I need to learn as Christians and especially preachers. You do, not have to, you do not have to make a defense every time someone makes an accusation against you, even if the accusation is bold-faced lying, wrong. Our Savior, when He stood before Pilate, and when Pilate mentioned the accusations that was made, that were made against Him, rather. He opened not his mouth. Didn't say a word. Had no need. Felt no need to defend himself. Because his life. Had done that. Who he was. Had done that. And here's the issue. You do not respond. In the proper ways. If you are just a shallow Christian, a, a hypocrite. Let's just say it like the Bible says it. If you have the outer cover, but not the inner man, you don't respond that way. Because the inner man comes out. You and I know as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So you got to change the heart. Ephesians chapter 4, 17 and following tell us where the battle rages. It lets us know where it goes. It's right up here. Walk not as the other Gentiles walk in the vanity, emptiness of their mind, having their understanding darkened, ignorant. You say their mind is full of corruption, their mind is full of the things of the world. And then he goes on and says, But you have not so learned Christ, you've been renewed. In your minds, by the precepts of God. Brethren, that's where the battle rages. It's in the mind. Even in this book, when Peter calls upon us, quoting from the book of Leviticus, Be holy as I am holy. God doesn't call upon us to do something that he doesn't tell us how to do it. And you look in beginning with verse 13, and he shows you how to be holy. And where does it begin? Gird up the loins of your mind. We understand the language. In the time that it was written, they wore long flowing robes. If they had work to do, if they had to travel swiftly, if they were going into battle, they would take those robes and tie them up, gird them up so they would not be in the way. And so we are told to gird up the loins of your mind. You have to bring your mind into subjection to the word of God. Whatsoever things are true and honest and lovely and just and pure and of good report, think on these things, meditate on these things, roll them over in your mind. How many times in the Psalms do we see that the righteous man will meditate on God's word? His delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law doth he meditate day and night. What's he doing? He's preparing the mind for what he has to face in the world. Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day, Psalm 119, verse 97. I'll meditate in thy precepts, have respect unto thy ways, I'll delight myself in thy statutes, I will not forget thy law. And in my estimation, Psalm 119, verses 15 and 16 really give a very good summation of that whole psalm. You be a man of the book, and not just a man who knows the book, but a man who has taken the book, Planted it in himself and now has owned it. The gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul preached, he said, is my gospel. I own it. I've taken it to myself. It defines who I am. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. And that's who he was. And that's who you and I must strive to be. Follow that perfect example. And we've got to clean up our minds. Satan's constantly attacking our minds. You look at at, at society today. You can't even watch a good ball game without a commercial coming on and trying to take your mind where it ought not to be. Nothing wrong with the ball game. Just turn the commercials off. Unless you're a Steeler fan. My beloved brother BJ. I'm a cowboy fan. It's hard to say nowadays, but the mind, the lust of the flesh drives our society and brethren in all honesty. I'm afraid many in the Lord's church have let him down in this area. We put on the facade We have the face. We know where the pew seat is at the right time. And yet our mind is filled with filth. Our mind is not under control. We haven't girded up the loins of our mind. He goes on and says, be sober, nepho, free from anything that intoxicates. You gotta be sharp-minded. You've got to control your mind, bring it into control, and let the Bible be the standard on that. Then you have to be sharp because Satan's out there every day, every moment, looking for a weakness, and you've got to be ready for it. You've got to be watching for it. And then he says you hope for the glory that will be revealed. You've got to be focused in your mind. So you gird up your mind, sharp-minded because the enemy's active, and you keep heaven in your mind keep focused on the goal and then the activity comes as obedient children you see but that activity comes because the mind is in the right place the mind has been trained you see and when we see Jesus on the cross he responds because that's his mind that's who he is that's his defining character inside and out purity no blemishes nothing hidden under the cover you see that's how you respond the way Jesus responded. no sin as he goes on he said and neither was guile found in his mouth mouth the word guile means a deception didn't try to deceive anybody didn't try to lie his way out of the cross we got brethren who when faced with their actions and their conduct, what they'll start doing is start lying. They'll start parting to other people. They'll start blaming others. They'll start saying, Well, that's not true, and in, in this That wasn't our Savior. That's not the example that we have. We are men of truth. And and if you are a man of truth, then whatever comes because of it, you're still gonna hold on to that truth. If you have transgressed, you will own it. You'll be a man instead of a child. You'll be a spiritually mature individual instead of a spiritual weakling. Growth, it's essential. There was no guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he was threatened or when he was insulted mocked he didn't turn around with insults he didn't try to debase the individuals that were debasing him that's the old man that's not the new creature that's not following the example the hoopagraman that's not tracing the image properly when he is reviled, he reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not. Consider for a moment that we're talking about the Son of God. The Son of God who could have called 10,000 angels. One, any one of which could have done the job to deliver him from the hands of these Dogs and bulls as it's described in Psalm 22. He didn't say, just wait until I see you in judgment. That wasn't the attitude of our Savior. When he was threatened, he threatened not. And here's the key. But he committed himself to him that judges righteously. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. You and I very well are aware of the fact that not all wrongs are righted here in this world. Not by any means. And I'm talking about wrongs out in society. I'm talking about wrongs to individuals. I'm talking about wrongs that are done on us. Not all of them are righted right here. But we don't have to worry about that. Because we know the day is coming when all wrongs will be righted. When men stand before the perfect, just God. Who is a merciful God, a gracious God, but also a severe God. Romans 11 verse 22. And a God of wrath that will be poured out upon his enemies. And there's some enemies of God, even in the church, because they're not willing to subject themselves and submit themselves to the Savior. And they're more like the world than they are a saint, Christians. And then he changes the topic, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That's what we talked about earlier. As he's on the cross suffering what he suffered, and the crucifixion, it was created and perfected to bring as much pain, excruciating, out of the crucifixion, that word, as long as possible. While he was on the cross, he responded properly in every way, without sin. And he left everything in the hands of God, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness. What a small, small price to pay here when compared to the price he paid for us. What a, a, just the perfect response. The reasonable response when we consider what he paid. By whose stripes you were healed, Isaiah 53. And then he is referencing us. We fall short, brethren. Far, far short too many times. But he is the great shepherd and bishop of our souls. And we thank God for that. And we're thankful for his rod and his staff, which are sometimes chastening instruments to help bring us back in line. And we know with confidence that he is the good shepherd. And that he will lead us beside still waters, green pastures. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we shall fear no evil. For his rod and staff comforts us. He is our trailblazer who's gone before us. He's died. Up from the grave he arose. He was raised to reign. He bound the strong man Satan who had the keys of death. Spoiled his goods. And when he was raised from the dead it says I am he that is alive was dead. Behold I'm alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death in my hand. Suffer a little bit here. Whatever price you have to pay it's worth it. I guarantee you there will not be one person, not one soul, on the day of judgment, when they enter into glory, will take the first step through that pearly gate and say, this wasn't worth it. I gave up way too much on earth for this. I guarantee you there will not be one. Not one. And that's including people who have suffered a lot more than you and I have for our, our faith, our Christ, our Savior. Our Savior but I promise you there'll be many entering into hell that will say, I wish I would have listened. I wish I would have taken to heart the word when it was preached. Oh, that I would have obeyed the gospel of Christ so I wouldn't have to come here and they will have an eternity of regret because they didn't follow the perfect example, Jesus Christ. Brethren, I appreciate your time and your attention this afternoon. Let's meditate on these things. Think often of the sacrifice of Christ. Let it guide our lives, our thoughts, our actions, our decisions, our walk in every way. And we will be blessed by it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Scattered Abroad Network. We are grateful for your continued support as well as your continued prayers. If you would like to find out more about our network, please visit our website at scatteredabroad.org. We look forward to studying with you again soon. May God bless you.